the abruptness, the lack of planning, the lack of consultation of this particular decision is producing chaos, casualties, and great increased risk to the United States. Which particular decision, well, Senator? I don't know why I came here tonight. Pick one. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From with Pacifica you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for you on the intertubes, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from Bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, when over the past 24 hours, there has been quite a bit of evidence that while the fate of this presidency and the impeachment inquiry underway, uh, while it remains unclear at best what will happen, there are now a lot of people within the administration, uh, current and formerly in the administration, seemingly lining up at this point to testify in some fashion against Donald Trump to congressional investigators, including a lot of dyed-in-the-wool, rock-ribbed Republicans who may now be hoping to save themselves as opposed to this presidency. Our old pal Heather Digby Parton will join us momentarily to discuss that and all of the latest in the impeachment of Donald J. Trump, as well as the um, the common thread, really, that that story has with the ongoing disaster unleashed in northern Syria after Trump gave the okay to Turkey to invade it and to attack uh, our apparently now former Kurdish allies there. Also, a little bit later in the show, it's the return of the Green News Report. Yay! See? (laughs) Someone's happy about it. Eventually we'd get back to it. Yes, after a month off there, uh, our first Green News Report in a month, wherein uh, Desi Doyen, you will somehow catch us up with a month's worth of Green News in just six minutes. Wish me luck. I am. Uh, but first off, uh, on the off chance that uh, Donald Trump is not removed by impeachment, or frankly, even if he is, it will be up to the American people to decide who the next president will be, or at least that is the theory 
Now, I've got a lot to catch up on uh, that I was unable to cover over the past month regarding voting systems and many of the impending nightmares where I left off a month ago regarding touchscreen computer ballot marking devices, which are proliferating our country from Georgia to North and South Carolina to Philadelphia to, yes, right here in Los Angeles. But that we'll have to get to in the days ahead. For now, I want to hit this Ohio story uh, very quickly here today. Uh, Last month, the state of Ohio tried something really radical. They released the names of voters on their to-be-purged list before actually purging them. And that is a good thing. It's a very good thing in this case that they did. The state's latest voter roll purge was based on a scheme that was first instituted by Ohio's previous Republican Secretary of State, now their Lieutenant Governor, John Husted. His uh, so-called use-it-or-lose-it scheme, where the uh, process to remove voters from the rolls could begin just as soon as a voter failed to vote in two consecutive federal elections. Uh, That scheme was upheld by the stolen Republican majority on the U.S. Supreme Court last uh, last session in a five to four victory for the vote suppressors. Essentially, it allows the state to begin the purge process of a voter if you missed just two elections. So let's say if you voted for Obama in 2008, but then you didn't vote at all in the midterms, that followed it, as most voters don't vote in the midterms. And then in 2012, you thought, well, you know what? I think Obama's going to win, so I'm going to sit that one out. If that happened, then Ohio could begin the process to purge you, according now to the Supreme Court, even though the Voting uh, uh, Voter Registration Act says you cannot purge a voter based on not voting. The uh, stolen Supreme Court believes otherwise. Yeah, and it also includes if, for example, you weren't able to vote because of long lines and you had to leave and you never returned, that would count as not showing up. Right. And so you could then uh, be purged or at least they could begin the purge process. Well, Ohio's new Republican secretary of state now, who's being described here uh, by The New York Times as a moderate under the presumption that there is such a thing in the Republican Party anymore. Uh, He has picked up that same purge process begun by his uh, predecessor, Secretary Husted, but he actually did something here that was not horrible. In fact, it was the right thing to do under the circumstances, incredibly enough. According to The New York Times today, the state of Ohio released names of 235,000 voters that it planned to purge from the voting rolls in September. Jen Miller, the director of the League of Women Voters of Ohio, believed that thousands of voters were about to be wrongly removed. The Ohio Secretary of State had sent her organizations, her organizations and others like it, a massive spreadsheet with the 235,000 names and addresses that would be purged from the state's voter rolls in just one month. This was a list of people that state officials said some part of the bureaucracy had flagged as either deceased or living somewhere else or as a duplicate in the database. So the League of Women Voters had been asked to see by the state of Ohio if any of those who uh, purged had actually qualified to register again. Miller 
Jen Miller uh, of the League of Women Voters spends her work day helping register people to vote. She scrolled through the names and then she wondered what was her own voter status in the state of Ohio. So she went online and she discovered that her name had also been flagged as an inactive voter and that the state was in the process of removing her from the rolls, even though she says she voted three times last year. She says, I don't think we have any idea how many other individuals this has happened to. Ohio is the uh, site of Tuesday night's Democratic debate. It's both a battleground state and the site of some of the country's strictest voting laws, from photo ID voting requirements to their uh, so-called use-it-or-lose-it provision that lets the officials drop voters who are seen as inactive. The Times reports that parts of the state are regularly disenfranchised, largely in purges aimed at those who have died or who have moved away, but which also hit real voters who do not learn that they can't vote until Election Day. This is one of the things that we warn about on this program and at Bradblog.com a lot. Just because you think you are registered to vote, you may not be. Go to your county website, your state website, and check to make sure. Now, don't wait until the uh, registration deadline uh, gets here. And check constantly, because this can happen all the time up until Election Day. Elections officials in other battleground states such as Florida and North Carolina and Georgia and Texas regularly purge their voter lists as well notes the Times. So this is by far not only a problem in Ohio, but... Ohio is a very important state. And what happened in this case reveals just how bad these systems for purging voters regularly actually are. And it reveals at least a responsible ish way for, uh, you know, to try and work with voting rights advocates during such purges. And I think the uh, secretary of state. The new one in Ohio, Frank LaRose, did just that by trying to work with these groups before removing uh, these voters. And now, you know, these, some of these purges are necessary. They're appropriate. You know, people don't tend to contact their county election official to be asked to be removed from the rolls after, for example, they die. They don't tend to call in after that and say, hey, I, I've died. Take me off the list. Uh, this year, a group of elected officials in the state of Ohio, mostly all moderate Republicans. Again, the Times uh, suggesting there is such a thing. Uh, they tried to answer the uh, many concerns about these purges with an experiment rather than purge the voters uh, behind closed doors, as had been done in the past. The government released the full list of those to be removed over the summer and gave the list to these advocacy groups. And the group said that they found that the list, what do you know, was riddled with errors. Around 40,000 people, nearly one in five names on the list, should not have been on it, the state has now determined. And it only found out before uh, anyone was actually turned away at a polling place, largely because of volunteers who went through these lists and uh, tried to figure it out. The uh, Ohio Secretary of State, uh, LaRose, whose office oversaw the purge, decided to crowdsource the list with voting rights advocates before the voters were actually purged. And I think he deserves credit for that. I don't know if that makes him a moderate. I guess, are you now a moderate if you don't do reprehensible things? If you actually do something that isn't horrible as a Republican, that makes you a moderate? I guess so. 
Uh, anyway, anyway, despite the horrible job that apparently uh, the state and the counties did at uh, putting these voters on the rolls in the first place, these people who should not have been purged, at least they uh, crowdsourced it and found out before they were removed. And I think this is the first time that Ohio or maybe any state has done this. And thank God they did. In in one case, the Times notes a data mistake. Uh, whatever that means, a data mistake from what the Times describes as an outside firm, whoever that may be. One of the, this mistake meant that a large number of people's names were set to be knocked off the rolls in uh, Ohio's uh, 88 counties, each of which use a different process of removing people from the rolls, which is already a problem. Uh, but voting rights groups found an unexplained uh, tranche of around 20,000 people who had been marked to be purged because of inactivity in future election cycles, but were actually active voters in previous Ohio elections. Again, I'm not sure exactly how that could happen, but at least it was caught. At least it was discovered. These were voters in Franklin County, which is a Democratic stronghold in Ohio. One man, a, a guy, a hero, frankly, by the name of Steve Tingley Hawk, uh, who runs a watchdog group called the Ohio Voter Project, uh, he initially discovered that error. He said, if you look at the numbers, it's hard to not be jaded by this. He's a volunteer. He doesn't work for the government. He found this huge mistake because he, for years, has uh, spent his weekends download. This is his hobby, downloading the state's voter data onto his laptop and he keeps track of every uh, voter in Ohio. He says someone needs to keep a record of what's happening in the voter population and that this is what he's doing every Saturday morning, downloading these files. He does this in uh, for Ohio. He also uh, does it for North Carolina and Florida, uh, which have both uh, had similar uh, voter purges over the years. The states should pay him for that work. Yeah, they damn well should, or they should just figure out what he's doing. He says it's pretty simple, and they should just do it himself. Senator uh, William Coley, a Republican who has pushed for tightening the voting laws, said that the number of elections that are decided by one vote or few votes, it doesn't take much to throw an election. So he's supporting this kind of thing. Well, you know, no, it doesn't take much, Senator. And tossing 40,000 voters off the rolls incorrectly in Ohio, that's a hell of a good way to throw an election, to throw an entire presidential election, for that matter. For the entire country, in fact. Uh, so uh, anyway, kudos for the moment to the so-called moderate Republican secretary of state in Ohio, uh, LaRose. I hope that he continues to do uh, similarly helpful things for the voters instead of for his party. When he was asked if other uh, states might uh, take the lead in doing this, he said I, he said he hoped that other states don't look at what we've done and say we're not going to do it because he fears they may take the wrong lesson and see that there were all of these problems that showed up. So these other not so moderate Republicans may not do it. But, of course, they probably won't, since that's the point of many of these Let's call them non-moderate Republican vote suppressors who try to purge the lists every year around this time. So check your registration. We'll continue to say it and we will hope you do it. Quick break and we are back with an impeachment update and much more with uh, Heather Digby Parton of Salon and Digby's Hullabaloo. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> Thank you.
Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Yes, they continue to do so. You know, when I was uh, off for the past month, uh, at some point I wrote to some folks, said, hey, I'm going to be off the grid for a month, but all I ask is that you save the world while I'm gone. It should be easy. Little did I know that uh, that was before the latest impeachment uh, inquiry got underway concerning Donald Trump. So who knows? Maybe we will have saved the world before this thing is uh, all done. We'll find out. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Fiona Hill, the White House's former top Russia advisor, told impeachment investigators on Monday during some 10 hours of closed-door testimony that Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal lawyer, ran a shadow foreign policy in Ukraine that circumvented U.S. officials and career diplomats in order to personally benefit President Trump. That, according to reporting today from The Washington Post, Hill, who served as the senior official for Russia and Europe on Donald Trump's National Security Council, and worked previously in the George W. Bush administration, was the latest witness in a fast-moving impeachment inquiry focused on whether the president abused his office by using the promise of military aid and diplomatic support to pressure Ukraine into investigating his political rivals. Hill reportedly told lawmakers that she confronted Gordon Sondland, the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, about Giuliani's activities, which she testified were not coordinated with the officials responsible for carrying out U.S. foreign policy. That, according to a source familiar with her testimony on Monday. Sondland played a leading role in the Trump administration's efforts to pressure Ukraine to open investigations of the president's political rivals, according to text messages obtained and later released by House Democrats. Sondland is also now set to appear before lawmakers later this week. And reporting from several outlets suggests that he will not necessarily be backing up Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani's take on these events. Sondland, like Hill, may now be in the process of trying to save himself and, if we're lucky, the country along with it. And in a sign the impeachment inquiry is widening, investigators were discussing whether to question John Bolton, Trump's former national security advisor. According to people familiar with the matter, Bolton was Hill's direct superior at the National Security Council. According to The New York Times today, Bolton asked Hill to use her testimony to House investigators to help distance him from the Ukraine pressure campaign. Two people 
people familiar with the Monday testimony told The Times that Bolton asked Hill to tell the House committees that he was, quote, not part of whatever drug deal Sondland and Mick Mulvaney, that's Trump's still acting chief of staff, are cooking up. Hill testified that Bolton was so bothered by the pressure campaign efforts in the White House that he asked Hill to alert White House lawyers about what was going on. Of course, with Trump's current White House lawyers, I'm not sure that that would have mattered all that much, but still. Hill also reportedly told investigators that Bolton referred to Giuliani as a, quote, hand grenade who's going to blow everybody up. Sounds like Bolton was not too far off the mark there. Uh, Hill had left the uh, National Security Council voluntarily earlier this summer. She worked closely on Ukraine with two diplomats who have become central to the inquiry. One is Marie Ivanovich, the former career diplomat and U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. She testified last week about her understanding of Giuliani's efforts to remove her from her post. I should say uh, his successful efforts to remove her from from her post. Hill told committees uh, on Monday that she was infuriated by Yovanovitch's ouster. The ambassador had a, re a reputation for combating corruption in Ukraine, which is the very thing that Trump and Giuliani are pretending they were concerned about in Ukraine. Hill also worked closely with Sondland, who reportedly plans to tell impeachment investigators this week that the content of a text message he sent to the chief U.S. diplomat in Ukraine the chief U.S. diplomat after Yovanovitch was removed. That text insisted there was no quid pro, uh, quid pro quo in play, but that that text, that message, was given to him directly by Trump in a phone call. That's what the Washington Post reported over the weekend that Sondland will be testifying to. He also plans to tell lawmakers that he has no knowledge of whether the president was telling him the truth when the president told him to say that. So this week is shaping up now to be one of the most active in the four-week-old impeachment inquiry. Administration officials are facing a series of deadlines to turn over documents to House investigators. Vice President Pence, Energy Secretary Rick Perry, Rudy Giuliani, and officials at the Pentagon and the Office of Management and Budget have all been served with document requests about the administration's policies in Ukraine, and in some cases, their own interactions with Ukrainian officials. Two of Giuliani's clients and or associates, the uh, Soviet-born U.S. citizens Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, who were charged last week with violations of campaign finance law, they also face a Wednesday deadline for turning over documents to House investigators. Lawmakers there also expect to hear testimony from other witnesses, including from George Kent, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State responsible for Ukraine, who Giuliani and uh, right-wing media figures have accused of trying to protect the Bidens from an investigation and uh, of working at the behest of billionaire George Soros, so you know their critique is definitely grounded in reality. The committee's plan to hear as well from Ambassador Bill Taylor, who features prominently in those text messages with Sondland, questioning whether the administration was withholding aid in exchange for Ukraine launching those investigations against the Bidens. Also, Michael Kinley, who resigned last week 
as the senior advisor to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Laura Cooper, the deputy assistant director of defense, will all also appear for testimony, according to people familiar with the matter. So, uh, wow, despite the White House's attempts up till now to keep any and all executive branch officials from cooperating in any way with House Democrats, it seems like for some reason a whole bunch of them are now willing to do so for some reason, as this attempt to impeach the president of the United States still seems to be gaining, not losing steam. Of course, had I not been off the air for the past month due to the passing of my father, I suspect I'd have had our guest today on long ago to discuss these quickly moving and seemingly very serious developments. Uh, would have had her on much earlier to discuss them uh, since we've had her on the show at just about every crucial moment and or turning point in both the Trump candidacy and presidency to help us somehow make sense of it all. Joining us now once again is the great Heather Digby Parton, the much-beloved longtime blogger known simply as Digby. She's the proprietor of the long-running Hullabaloo blog and a regular contributor at Salon.com and a winner of the Sidney Hillman Prize for Opinion and Analysis Journalism. Heather Digby Parton, welcome back to the broadcast. Thanks for having me, Brad. Well, we've got a lot to try to catch up with uh, in a very short time here today, Heather, uh, including your coverage today at Salon regarding Trump's bizarre motives, or I should say questionable, mysterious, I don't know, his motives for pulling the U.S. troops out of uh, northern Syria and abandoning our, uh, our Kurdish allies and potentially freeing hundreds, if not thousands, of ISIS detainees along with it. But I want to start with impeachment. Uh, and where we are now, I need to get your thoughts on a lot of this. Uh, but let me start here, Heather. Trump's Russia expert, Fiona Hill, also told the House uh, investigators that John Bolton referred to Giuliani as a hand grenade who's going to blow everybody up and ask her to warn White House lawyers about what was going on. Obviously, Bolton was kind of right there. But what does it tell us about how awful and terrible and incompetent and corrupt that this White House is, Heather, when John Bolton, of all people, could end up being a hero in this sorry story? Is, is, is that possible? Well, no. John Bolton won't be a hero. Um, but it may just be that, like Omar in The Wire, um, that, you know, even even the killer's got to have a code, right? So maybe, <laughs> maybe in, this, in this particular instance, and, you know, frankly, because he is a Russia hawk as yeah. well, yeah, right. that, you know, this may have just been a bridge too far for him. And, and he's also a guy who's been around a long time in government. I mean, unlike a lot of the people around Trump, John Bolton actually uh, understands how it works. Mm -hmm. and he, may, he undoubtedly, actually, Fiona Hill as well, and some of the others who finally rebelled this summer, they were in there for a long time, and they didn't say anything about a lot of shenanigans. But at some point, when you have the president, and he did do this all the way last spring, mm -hmm. was telling people like Rick Perry and others working on you know various Ukraine issues to you know run that through Rudy. He's mm -hmm. running this. Well, you know that's just not done. You don't have some outside lawyer <laughs> running your foreign policy in a certain place and telling your people to go through them. And that may have been, that was the beginning of the understanding of just how far Trump had gone. And I don't think it's a, you know, it, we should be in any way surprised that, that somehow or another this was the straw that broke the camel's back because the timing is very obvious. When the Mueller report came out, 
and it became clear that Trump was not going to be held responsible for any of the laws he broke mm -hmm. and for any of the norms he exploded and for the fact that even though, you know, he clearly colluded with Russia during the 2016 election, mm -hmm. they couldn't find enough evidence to establish that there was a legal conspiracy. He, re he, he took that as a green light himself to do whatever he needed to do. Mm -hmm. He was completely above the law. That's how that played out for him, and it was right around then. And, you know, Rudy'd been doing this stuff for a while. He's been, you know, had his tentacles out, and, of course, Fox News and the whole right-wing fever swamp had been building these conspiracy theories that are the basis of all this, and that's worth the whole show unto itself, Brad. Well, <laughs> um, well, anyway, that's why this has happened. It's that Trump finally felt liberated to be the con artist and criminal he truly is. Well, openly do it well let me uh, back up though to my uh, initial point on on bolton here here's a you know a sentence that i i never thought i would say let me make the case for why john bolton could be a hero here okay uh you know if um, he goes in and if he says to the if if he does decide to testify and he's i mean because in theory he would know everything around all of this and if he says look this is what uh, Donald Trump told me this is what he was trying to do it's going to be very difficult for 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 house republicans but you know senate republicans as well to say you know oh john bolton is wrong john bolton is a crazy man even though we all know john bolton actually is a crazy man but it's going to be very hard to turn on a john bolton if he decides to actually testify against Donald Trump in all of this and you're you're saying you just don't see that uh, as a possibility I, I would find I find it hard to believe that it will be Bolton mm -hmm. that Bolton will be the thing where the Republicans go wow we just can't go up against John okay. Bolton I you know I mean maybe uh, anything yeah. could happen and it certainly adds I mean what we're seeing here is, is this is a cumulative effect mm -hmm. a cumulative effect I think people underestimate that in the, the way the impeachment plays out. I mean, certainly with Nixon, mm -hmm. I mean, I watched that unfold, and, that you know, it, it takes a while for it sort of to gain momentum, and that takes evidence coming out again and again. You know, Mueller, everybody thought, well, that landed with a dud, but the truth is that for the two years that they were doing the investigating, things were leaking, not from Mueller, but mm -hmm. from people involved in the investigation. Uh, so, you know, we were building this, you know, this case was kind of building up. Well, Mueller decided that he couldn't, you know, he couldn't indict a sitting president and that there wasn't enough evidence on the conspiracy charge. And it was kind of like, you know, so they're sitting there churning their wheels. And then along comes this, which is really just an extension of the Mueller investigation. This is the same kind of stuff that Trump was accused of, that we all, you know, uh, suspected him of doing. Colluding with a foreign government, you know, <laughs> using, you know, to, to, to sabotage his rival's campaign. Well, here he is doing it in real time. And I think that's really where, what has made the difference. Now, somebody like Bolton or Fiona Hill, who, by the way, you know, she was, she's a Republican. She, mm -hmm. I don't mean to cast aspersions on her, but she's been in there since the beginning. And there's been a lot of this kind of stuff. I mean, all the stuff with, with Trump's meetings with Putin and his various, you know, foreign policy bungles and North Korea and all the rest of it. She's been there for that. And they all kind of sat there. Maybe they thought they were adults in the room. But, you know, I have, if there's one group of people that I think have really been disappointing, it's the adults in the room well. who basically didn't, you know, do anything. But now that, now that it's kind of reached a critical mass. Yeah. 
people are starting to say, "All right, that's it." You know, they've hit they've hit a wall, and good for them, and even good for John Bolton. Well, exactly. You know? And let me so let me clarify. I'm not saying that John Bolton is a wonderful guy. <laughs> no, uh, you know, he's not. a terrible no. guy. But if you look at this this list, and one of the reasons I wanted to sort of open uh, the conversation with that piece. Uh, from the Post and the Times and some other sources is because if you put them all together here, Fiona Hill, Gordon Sondland, John Bolton, uh, Marie Yovanovitch, who's already testified, George Kent, Bill Taylor, uh, there are a lot of people who seem to be lining up ready to, I don't know if spill the beans is the right word here, but are, you know are, are, are ready to maybe just save themselves, mm-hmm. uh, but maybe they'll save the country at, at the same time. You talk about the cumulative effect of the uh, Nixon impeachment. I think if, we, if we're seeing these people now coming in, these are Republicans, these are not Democrats, you know, coming in one after another after another, testifying against what Trump did. Um, I think this... Well, and let's know. not forget that one of the things they're doing is they're defying the White House, you know, telling them not mm-hmm. to go right. testify. They're saying, no, I've got a subpoena, I'm going to go do it. Right. Now, that is a change. That is something different than we've seen. I mean, they've been stonewalling since January, since the Democrats took over the House and they started their investigations. The White House stonewalled, the, uh, every department stonewalled. They, right. You know, the Department of Justice backed them up in their stonewall. Suddenly, that stone wall is is crumbling, yeah. and and these people are coming forward. And I give them, I, I don't mean to be so, you know, I, I, in fact, that's really not my attitude about anybody. Any, re, yeah, and and look, I don't want to be one of those people. Who's, you yeah. know, you were you betrayed me ten years ago. I'll never forgive you. you know, that's, that's really not my attitude. If people are ready to do the right thing, I welcome them with open arms to do it. Um, but, you know, it is because, and I don't think they get the credit for bringing it to this point, mm-hmm. I think that this is largely a result of the press being, um, you know, for all their errors, mm-hmm. they have been on this story from the very beginning, and when when the New York Times came out with its ridiculous Hunter Biden, Peter Schweitzer, um, you know, the guy who wrote Clinton Cash, right, you know, that... Right. that um, when the New York Times came out with that, a lot of members of the president, whoa, wait a minute, you know, and they and they questioned it, and and pursued this thing. So you know, I mean, I think, and the Democrats, you know, I mean, I give Adam Schiff credit right. as well. I think he's handled this really well. But you know, good for good for Bolton. And by the way, let's just point this one thing out. You know, Donald Trump, when Bolton was fired or quit, you know, you're mm-hmm. I quit. No, I you know you're fired. Whatever right. happened there. Um, Donald Trump was really, really denigrated Bolton publicly, and he tends to do that. He did the yeah, same yeah. thing to Tillerson. And, you know, you kind of have to ask yourself, you know, are you, you know, how dumb are you? Because Bolton knew a lot of things. Right. Rick Tillerson knows a lot of things. Right. And he's been talking, too. Yep. You know, so it's kind of, you know, the smart person in that situation would say, oh, John Bolton, great guy, loved him. You know, he was wonderful, but we've kind of made a change of of policy here and we think maybe we need some new blood or whatever you know and just say he's a great guy and you know loved working with him instead trump goes out and just insults these people (laughs) and you know john bolton isn't you know he's not a civilized person. <laughs> no, and you know, uh, he's more like Trump. So you know, kind of a mistake. Well, I think. yeah, I don't know if Donald Trump's uh, greatest asset is thinking these things through. <laughs> no, you know, necessarily. Right. <laughs> I, you know, and I sort of wonder if his his uh, mistake 
uh, Trump's uh, one of his many mistakes, but in this particular case, uh, crossing the career diplomats at the State Department. You know, these people who have been around for years. Uh, maybe this is the deep state that we've heard so much about. But I, I wanted to get, get your thoughts, and, and I think you've, you've you sort of explained it well about why uh, we talked about it a little bit on yesterday's show as well, why this thing, this event, seems to be making such a, such a difference, why this one was the one that Nancy Pelosi was willing to move forward with an impeachment inquiry, uh, not the multiple incidents of criminal obstruction of justice revealed by the Mueller report, not the fact that Trump paid off a porn star uh, to keep her quiet to win a presidential election in a campaign finance felony conspiracy where his lawyer is in jail for that spiracy, which uh, he and prosecutors say Donald Trump directed. I mean, all of those to you and I, uh, Digby, these are like you know, no-brainers. Of course you impeach over these things, and yet... Pelosi and the Democrats were sort of, you know, pulling their punches, afraid to do so. Uh, So I wanted to ask, why is this the story that she has finally agreed to? But I think maybe you have uh, hit on it. You say that this story, the Ukraine story, was already sort of underscored by everything that came before it. We already had two years of, of conversation and debate and investigation about the president using foreign powers or working with foreign powers to overthrow an election. And now we have he, he seems to have been caught doing or trying to do the same thing in 2020. So this is an active crime that they're trying to stop from happening. Is that is that one way to look at it? I think so. I mean, I think and it's also, you know, it took he took it to another level when when he did this in 2016, he was a candidate and what they would have had to prove, I mean, it was obviously tremendously unethical, everything that they did, including, you know, announcing at a press conference, you know, Russia, if you're listening. But that the crimes that he would have been charged with, had mm-hmm. it been there, would have been difficult kind of arcane federal uh, election law violations, right? He was getting something of value from a foreign country. This yeah, well, different. and paying off the uh, porn star to steal yeah, an election. And, but yeah, I take your point. Yeah, yeah but okay. you know what I mean? I yeah. mean, these were, as a candidate, right. he was doing nefarious things. Right. Um, and and, and not, I'm not, you know, to me, all of it's impeachable. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you don't have to commit. Right. I thought oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. impeach the minute any of these things came out. But uh, I understand why there may have been some reluctance, because these are sort of, you know, I think it's the everybody does it thing. Mm-hmm. I don't think most people, and maybe most Republicans, I don't know, maybe 35% of the country, believes that most presidents talk to foreign leaders the way that Trump was revealed to have spoken to pres- the president of Ukraine in that call. Mm. That using the, the power of the presidency, leveraging uh, military aid, um, you know, having his running it like a like a private foreign policy with his own lawyer being involved and dragging in the attorney general mm-hmm. and the secretary of state into this. This is not something I mean, to me, it is a you know, it's a perfect sort of extension of what he did in 2016. But this time he did it with the power of the U.S. government behind him. Yeah. And that may have been what was the straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, this keeps happening, right? Why are we constantly I, I can't remember all the Russian and Ukrainian names and all of this right. stuff that were. But from the minute he came in, this has been part and parcel of his presidency, this constant suspicious behavior and it's not just ukraine which i don't know if you want to talk about this but you know it's yeah. also foreign policy stuff mm-hmm. 
that has the same implications. Well, it and does. We're watching that happen. And and that sort of uh, walks us into the uh, to the next uh, point that I wanted to talk to you about your column at uh, Salon, uh, because you know one of the things I mentioned this on the on, on the show yesterday. You know, I get the sense that in one of those off the record meetings where they just where you know between uh, Donald Trump and and uh, uh, Vladimir Putin, where Trump ordered the translators to destroy the notes and all of that stuff that we you know may never hear what actually happened. I have a feeling one of those meetings, Putin said to Trump, "Listen, if you want to know who uh, messed with the 2016 election, it was not us; it was the Ukrainians," because. You know, Trump had this comment uh, in that in that uh, uh, memo or whatever the readout from his call with the Ukrainian president, where he mentions CrowdStrike mm-hmm. and the server, the DNC server, as if Putin or someone told him, "If you want to look for that server, I know who has it. It's the Ukrainians." Now, the Ukrainians are the enemies of the Russians at this point, so I think Trump actually believes that Ukraine must have been behind it because he seemed to believe anything Putin tells him. Uh, And if Putin told him that, that's what he wants to, you know, find out and expose that it was really the Ukrainians and the friends of the Bidens. And and he buys that stuff. Well, you know, it's interesting that you mention that because I don't know if you remember this, but after, you know, at that famous um, Helsinki summit that Mm -hmm. they had, the press conference afterwards where Trump looked like a beaten dog, Mm -hmm. He came out and said, he started talking, blathering incoherently about where's the server? We want to find the server. And that Pakistani man, Mm. what about him? Right after he met with Putin, and everybody in the world was scratching their heads going, what in the hell is he talking about? And so I think you're right. I'm sure it came up in the meeting. That's, that's, you know, that was part of what what Putin was talking about to him. Because Trump actually seems to believe it. He, you know, he actually seems, and he'll, you know, believe any conspiracy theory, it seems, but he actually seems to believe that Ukraine was behind it. They were the ones who, uh, you know, with the help of the Democrats and the deep state, released the, the, the damning information on Paul Manafort, his, uh, his campaign manager, that ended up sending Manafort to jail. Uh, you know, I think he believes it. I think he believes whatever Donald, uh, whatever uh, Vladimir Putin tells him. And I don't have a particular problem with with Russia and Putin necessarily. But there's this pattern, which brings us to the Turkey story. I had jotted down a question for you last night, Heather, uh, that you appear to have answered with your column today at Salon. (laughs) My question was, well, any theory as to why Trump suddenly abandoned our Kurdish allies in Syria? Uh, which has become a clear win for Syria, for their Russian backers, for Iran, and for ISIS. Well, you spent a few pixels uh, speaking to that very question today at Salon. I did. And it's interesting because, you know, it ties in with what we were just talking about with Ukraine as well. I don't know, you know, nobody's talked about this because there's so much news going on, but this, the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee came out with a big report last week. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, you know, there's just too much to talk about. But in that report, one of the things that they, that they revealed was in their investigation, and they had found through the various, and I don't know if it was domestic intelligence um, agencies or whether it was one of the foreign intelligence agencies Mm -hmm. that had been helping with this, found that after the election in 2016, uh, you know, all all these uh, intelligence people in the Russian government, you know, had toasted Donald Trump's victory, Mm -hmm. cheering it on and saying specifically because this would be, this would uh, help them with Ukraine 
and Syria. These two countries were mentioned specifically. And every time Trump has met with Putin, Syria has been part of the discussion. And just as we talked about where he's talking about, you know, the servers and everything in that Helsinki conference, one of the weird things was there was no, nobody transcribed that meeting. Nobody knows what actually happened. But Putin very ostentatiously came out afterwards with a bunch of notes uh, that were sort of in very large writing mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of shown so that the press could see it. Right. And, um, you know, both of these things were on that, Syria and Ukraine. And, and you could see that these were things he wanted people to see. I mean, part of this is, you know, him being able to, to leverage the president in some way. So uh, for whatever, you know, Putin has a lot to gain mm-hmm. by, uh, you know, Trump withdrawing from the Middle East in any way other than protection of Israel. And now it appears that he's sending troops to Saudi Arabia, and that evidently was done under pressure. He didn't really want to do that either. So, but Putin stands to gain a lot by this. And when when I was looking at the Turkey situation, I'm reading all these articles. And there's, you know, I mean, it's it's a horrific. I mean, we're already seeing the ethnic cleansing. They're saying that you know as much, many as 250,000 mm-hmm. Kurds are already on the move. Mm. And, you know, we're seeing footage of executions at the roadside and the, the usual horrible, horrible stuff yeah. that we knew was going that to happen. That was totally um, predictable, yeah. yeah. But the, the, the conventional wisdom is <laughs> that Trump did this impulsively, that he was just on, you know, on the horn with Erdogan, or Erdogan mm-hmm. uh, late at night. And he'd say, all right, go ahead, you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> go ahead, buddy. Do what you need to do. I'm pulling out. And so he did it, and nobody else knew about it, and everybody was kind of shocked and whatever. That may be true that nobody else knew he was going to do it in mm-hmm. that moment or that they didn't you know, expect that it was going to be this kind of an abrupt uh, change in policy. Uh-huh. And they have been arguing about it for a long time. General Mattis you know, resigned over this particular issue. Right. But it, it just, that's, that's just not a, a reasonable thing to think. It would, <laughs> you know, I mean, Trump, that Trump just did this off the cuff. It would be I mean, quite a coincidence that yeah. every single thing that he seems to do, all of these big moves, and yes, you know, all of this was predictable. I love this statement that the White House put out today, uh, actually from Trump, supposedly, where he's uh, condemning them, saying that, oh, we're going to slap sanctions on them. Uh-huh. And there's this one sentence, he says, unfortunately, Turkey does not appear to be mitigating the humanitarian effects <laughs> of its invasion. I shouldn't laugh, but I, it's gallows humor. It, it really oh is. And, uh, of its invasion, what did he think was going to happen when he actually approved, literally, of this invasion? They said that when, when he announced that, yeah. you know, these long plans, they knew this was going to happen. He didn't care. And again, I'm not, uh, listen, I, I, I've said many times, I'm not a Russia hawk. These guys... You know, the U.S. And, uh, and and Russia or the USSR have been at each, uh, you know, at each other now for decades. They try to gain what political leverage they can, what land they can, what control they can. That's what they do. But it seems odd for a president who is running on the premise of America first that in case after case after case, he has delivered Russia first in every single one of these uh, of these matters. It absolutely is, and this this is you know you can chalk up Trump's weird decision making and foreign policy bundles. You can always look at corruption. He has corrupt um, you know business deals all over the world, mm-hmm. and any of those, and in Turkey, and specifically, he has Trump Tower there and some other business deals. 
He has a relationship with Erdogan that predates him being president as, as sort of a business associate in, uh, in Turkey. So, of course, he's a corrupt criminal. He could be doing it for personal reasons. He could be doing it because he's an, you know, he's an imbecile. Uh, he could be doing it because he's lazy and just kind of, you know, didn't want to think about it anymore. I mean, all those things are, uh-huh. are, are reasonable. But you cannot ignore, I mean, this is where I've come up on this, because I'm like you, you know, I mean, I just see this more as just kind of great game stuff in Russia and the mm-hmm. U.S. And, you know, Putin is a particularly malevolent kind of character, and I, I don't want to underplay mm-hmm. that because he is. Mm-hmm. And he certainly has, you know, uh, expansionist um, plans right. for his country. And he's a, you know, look, he's a petro-oligarch, right. basically. So, yeah. you know, he's not a good guy. But... You know, I've not been one to, you know, see this as some, you know, kind of James Bond villain sort of situation. Mm-hmm. Me but neither. you cannot ignore the fact yeah. that every time that Trump makes some foreign policy decision, every time he goes to a foreign meeting, every time, and this even includes North Korea, by the way, and, and his dealings with China, mm-hmm. somehow or another, Russia ends up, you know, or Vladimir Putin, since it accrues to his benefit. Every and, single and, time. And, you know, that's qu- it's yeah. to the point where I can no longer chalk this up to coincidence. Uh, I just can't. No, you can't. And, uh, you know, it, that, that still doesn't keep us from uh, digging into the question as to why, what it is that Russia sure. may or may not have on him, but... Uh, well, or even if like you, yeah, you may know, just like Putin. Yeah, we like don't know him. the reason yet, yeah. but in every case, you cannot ignore this. As you write at the end of your salon piece today, it's impossible to ignore the fact that while every single Trump foreign policy bungle can be attributed to ignorance, narcissism, or corruption, for some reason they always seem to accrue to the benefit of Vladimir Putin. And we'll just have to continue to figure out why that is and <laughs> chuckle can. whenever he talks about America first. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Heather, I got to get out. We got to get to our Green News report, our first one in a month coming up after a break. So Heather will be talking again soon. You can find her work, of course, at salon.com, at digbysblog.blogspot.com. You should follow her on the Twitters at digby56 and pay close attention for her next almost certain appearance on the broadcast. Heather Digby <laughs> Parton, always great talking to you, girlfriend. Thanks for having me, Brad, and welcome back. Thank you. Okay, a quick break, and we are back for the first Green News Report in a month. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your broadcast. <laughs> The Bratcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Just like old times, ain't it? And it has been a long time. It has been a long time, a month, since our latest Green News Report. We're back. While we were out. We are a wave of change. Together and united, we are unstoppable. And if you belong to that small group of people who feel threatened by us, then we have some very bad news for you. 
Big developments in climate science, climate strikes, extreme weather impacts, public lands policy, pollution, pesticides, and more. All of that straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Pacific Gas and Electric shut off the electricity to a million people in case a spark from one of their wires would start a wildfire. How's that for logic? Everybody, uh, stay inside and light dozens of candles in every room, because we don't want to start a fire. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, we're back. Yes. We were gone for about a month, first time in our 10-year history of the Green News Report that we've ever had to suspend production due to a family emergency, the passing of my father. But we are back, and we've got a month's worth of green news that somehow you're going to fit in to six minutes. <laughs> yes, some really, really big stuff happened. Here's just a bit. The Trump administration went to war with the state of California, moving to revoke the state's decades-old special authority under the Clean Air Act, allowing it to regulate tailpipe emissions from cars and trucks. California and 23 other states are now suing. Former oil and gas lobbyist turned Trump Interior Secretary David Bernhardt issued an unprecedented withdrawal of 70 miles of protected public lands along the southern border with Mexico, exempting those lands from federal environmental laws in order to speed up construction of Trump's border wall. Construction crews have already begun bulldozing Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument. The Trump administration proposed a rule to allow mining companies to pay even less in royalties and fees on valuable resources they extract from public lands. Because, of course, it's the public's money. Naturally, we're giving it away to private companies. In climate news, September 2019 clocked in as the hottest September on record globally, breaking the September record set just in 2016. So far this year, we've seen the hottest June, the hottest July, the second hottest August, and now the hottest September. September. Scientists with the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issued a new report with dire warnings on how man-made global warming is rapidly changing the oceans, from accelerating sea level rise to more frequent marine heat waves killing coral reefs to ocean waters becoming more acidic so that animals like oysters can't form their shells. The report also recommended solutions to preserving the ocean ecosystem that begin with acting on climate change. Parts of Houston, Texas were inundated by Tropical Storm Imelda, the worst storm in the state since Hurricane Harvey and one of the wettest tropical cyclones ever recorded in U.S. history. Typhoon Hagibis, the largest storm to hit Japan in decades, over the weekend killed at least 50 people as of airtime and brought record rainfall, landslides and flooding to Japan that overwhelmed that island nation's flood control infrastructure. And they're still fighting that one and will be for quite some time. The Trump EPA proposed new regulations for reducing lead and copper in drinking water, a national public health danger exposed by the Flint water crisis. But critics say the new rules would actually slow down the replacement of the most dangerous water service lines in the United States. Why am I not surprised? On Monday, firefighters in California made headway against the biggest wind-driven wildfires raging across the parched state. Officials suggested sanctions against Pacific Gas and Electric, the state's largest electric utility, for its haphazard, bad 
badly managed shutoff of electricity to more than a million customers in Northern California. It was intended to prevent its aging equipment from igniting wildfires, but regulators say PG&E deferred critical maintenance for years, instead funneling billions to its shareholders and executives. Economic losses from the disruption could top $2 billion. Scientists warn it could be a preview of how our infrastructure is not ready for the new normal of climate change. And of course, what good would sanctions do? They've already declared bankruptcy. They owe billions of dollars. It's time, frankly, for the state to take over that company. But there was also some good news. Millions of people around the world marched for climate action during the global climate strike in late September, the largest strike yet, inspired by Swedish teen climate activist Greta Thunberg, who excoriated leaders at the United Nations and the U.S. Congress for their failure to take action. Finally, the C40 World Summit of Mayors last week in New York unveiled a playbook outlining high-impact strategies and policies so that cities can act to decarbonize their transportation and building sectors, expand renewable energy resources, and harden their infrastructure in the face of federal inaction. The city of San Jose, California, stepped up first, voting to become the largest city in the United States to ban natural gas from most new home construction. I'm exhausted just listening to those six minutes well done, Desi Doyen. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report, because we're back. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. Thank you, Desi. Uh, that makes me uh, actually feel good to be back. So okay, good. I appreciate that. Uh, you do have a quick update, however, on that uh, Japanese typhoon? Yes, not so great news. The death toll has risen now to 72 as mm. of airtime and is likely to rise. <sighs> Well, thanks for ruining everything. Sorry. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to my guest today, Salon's Heather Digby-Parton, of course, to my uh, erstwhile producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending, I don't know what erstwhile means, for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi and I try to do every day over your public airwaves. And a lot of you have uh, sent in uh, donations in honor of my father. I thank you for that. That means a great deal. Uh, And uh, we have a lot of catching up to do after not being on air for the past month. So bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. Drop me an email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you can find, follow, and share me planetwide at simply the Brad Blog. See you there until we see you again tomorrow with our special Democratic debate coverage. That's coming up tomorrow on the Bradcast. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Yeah!